suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined well, hello out there, and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Moraghan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and yes, we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today, we return to Trial of the Century, Part 13, subtitled, prosecutorial own goals don't offend the judge and so so it is we're back in the courtroom where the formal trial of leopold and loeb is to take an unexpected turn it's 1924 in the wicked city of chicago and clarence darrow has just informed Judge Caverly, that Leopold and Loeb, his clients, were formally changing their pleas from not guilty to guilty by reason of insanity, sanity, and thereby eliminating the need for a jury trial where the spectacle of a biblical eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and all that sort of thing clearly would prevail. And now he would avoid it. And the mood of the city and its jury pool would only result in, in really one possible outcome. And that would be the imposition of the death penalty for both Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Jury deliberation and the resultant jury verdict, you know, the finding of guilt, would be calibrated probably in minutes, if not mere seconds. The expectation of extended jury argument as to guilt or not guilt would not take place. And this outcome, um, Clarence Darrow would avoid by the amending of the pleadings of guilt. And the objective, simply avoid, never allow 12 angry men to be seated in that jury box in the first place. Eliminate this option. And standing before Chief Justice John R. Caverly, Darrow immediately got to the heart of the argument, as, of course, Don Headley would later sing so poignantly 60 years later, the heart of the matter. Darrow made things perfectly clear, informing the judge. We want to state frankly here that no one believes these defendants should be released. We believe they should be permanently isolated from society. After long reflection, um, we have determined um, to make a motion for each to withdraw our plea of not guilty and enter pleas of guilty to both indictments, you know, murder and kidnap. And then the trial would be nothing beyond an extended sentencing hearing, and that is what it would turn out to be. Two months of long, heated argument. And unlike in Franz Kafka's novel, The Trial, where the protagonist uh, you know, of, the, of the story, the defendant, Joseph K., is arrested and prosecuted by a remote, inaccessible authority with the nature of his crime 
revealed neither to him nor nor to the reader a story Kafka um, admitted was heavily influenced by Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Well, in the Leopold and Loeb case, the opposite was in fact the, the truth. That was the essence of the problem. There were no mysteries as to the crimes themselves, you know, kidnap and murder of Bobby Franks, nor who done it. Leopold and Loeb had admitted they had done it. Everybody involved in the case, the defendants, the prosecutors, the judge, the victim's family, and the general public, everybody knew what was going on, what had happened, and they knew it in intimate de detail. The only unknown in the case, really, was how was it that two genius defendants in the names of Leopold and Loeb had found it within themselves to murder an innocent boy who had lived with his family just a few doors down from the families of Leopold and Loeb. How was this possible? And that was a mystery. Many people didn't believe it even necessary to resolve. To most people, unraveling that enigma meant nothing. It need not be resolved. The crime called for punishment, severe punishment. It be imposed, period, done, case closed, life in the wicked city struggles on. And when Darrell made that stunning announcement, the, the prosecutorial team was absolutely shocked, stunned, and they were staggered for Darrell had per, perhaps not checkmated them necessarily, but they certainly now found themselves checked. An uncomfortable position from which the prosecution needed to extricate itself immediately. And and the prosecutors had never anticipated Darrow's move. They never saw it coming. The prosecutors were on the defense now. That was for sure. And with the single unanticipated move, Darrow had abolished all chance of jury conviction. They wouldn't even be in the room. There would be no jury. No jury was needed whatsoever. With the boys' admission of guilt, the boys' future, their very lives were in the hands of one single man, Judge John Caverly. Now that decision as to life and death was to be in the hands of a single man, Judge Caverly, and Darrow had made his second vital argument to the court. When he stood up and argued to the judge, we asked that the court permit us, you know, the defense, to offer evidence as to the mental condition of these young men. And we wish to offer uh, evidence in mitigation of punishment. Now, in this trial turned now into a sentencing hearing, Darrow knew in advance. He had already studied the, the, the history of Judge Caverly. And he, he bore no resemblance to Kafka's instruction judge, that first judge of Joseph K., who was so out of it during you know, the Kafka uh, trial that he had confused Joseph K. with a wall painter. You know, that's a scary scenario, especially when one is on trial for crimes of which one is unaware of what the charges even are. But Darrow knew that Judge Caverly you know, as Chief Justice of the Circuit Court of Cook County, uh, Illinois, at, at the time of the Leopoldan trial, trial, but 
More importantly, he knew of his reputation, and he knew Darrow did that. Judge Caverly was no hanging judge, not by a long shot. And Robert Crow, the leading leading the prosecutorial team, he knew that judge's reputation as well. And the prosecution had been caught completely off guard. They would never want the sentencing decision to be to come from one man, Judge Caverly. They wanted that jury to convict. And so Darrell's move made them go nuclear, objecting stridently um, to Darrow's change of plea, and apparently to no avail, making no headway in Cavalier's court whatsoever in their arguments. The judge wasn't having it. And Darrow, uh, post-trial, he would write of the judge that, that Judge Cavalier had proved to be a kind man and discerning in his views of life. And, and Darrow, uh, Clarence Darrow and Leopold and Loeb the defendants, were lucky the case had been randomly assigned um, to an experienced jurist like Judge Cavalier for his record on the bench. All his past decisions had indicated an unusual sensitivity to youthful defenders. I mean, this was very, very helpful. And furthermore, to demonstrate his commitment to his causes, um, Judge Cavalier had been actively engaged for quite some time in, a, in establishing the very juvenile court system that had been adopted in Chicago to address crimes committed by wayward youth. This was a lucky break for Leopold and Loeb. And, and prosecutor Robert Crow, he knew all this as well and appreciated that Clarence Darrow's decision to plead the defendants guilty was influenced to a great degree by by Darrell's knowledge of the judge's notable history of leniency in the case of youthful defenders. And almost assuredly, almost assuredly, Darrell had made, you know, was making an undisguised attempt to have the sentencing decision in the Leopold and Loeb case made by an inherently predisposed, friendly judge in Judge Caverly. But when a thoroughly frustrated Robert Crow was bold enough and impolitic enough and stupid enough, depending on how one views these things, to suggest the judge's marked tendency to rule in this regard served as Darrow's primary motivation for the change of the defendant's plea. And, and he said so to Judge Cavalier in open court. Well, well, he had thoroughly embarrassed and angered Cavalier, who rebuked Robert Crow severely for daring to question and impugn his judicial integrity and impartiality. And Robert Crow had personally insulted the judge the most important man in this trial. And this was not a good move. Crow's comment had not been received well, and it produced an immediate negative response from an understandably, just an understandably incensed and insulted Judge Caverly, whom, whom responded to Crow's charge 
by calling it a cowardly and dastardly assault upon the integrity of the court. Uh-oh. And, and Judge Caverly was so pissed off, so pissed off that Crow had suggested this, that he ordered Crow's remark to be stricken from the official trial record. This is not a good way to start your case. And from the standpoint of the prosecution, this was a bad way to now commence the sentencing hearing in front of the one man that Robert Crow had totally infuri- uh, insulted and infuriated. And he, he had questioned the independent thinking capacity and integrity of the sitting judge, especially given Judge Caverly's role in the case was, was not going to be management of the presentation and defense of a case in front of a jury. no. In this case, Judge Caverly was the jury. He would be the one to render the sentencing decision. And Crow had definitely scored an own goal in the earliest moments of this trial. And from this point on, in the Leopold and Loeb trial, the prosecution would have to play from a goal down. Robert Crow had screwed it up completely. And, and by the way, I should point out that Crow may, may well have been 100% correct, 100% correct in assessing that Cavalier's definitive past record indicating a pronounced absolute soft spot in his heart for youthful offenders did exist, and his record demonstrated that. But declaring this out loud in open court, embarrassing the judge was definitely a bad plan. A significant tactical error of judgment on the part of the prosecution. And more than anything, it indicated the extent to which Darrow's volt face um, had thrown the prosecution off their game and had rattled them. Far greater subtlety on the part of Crow and his team in addressing or confronting the judge's well-recognized predisposition toward youthful offenders had been called for, but they were un, up, un, unable to produce the subtlety that was necessary. Crow had responded to Darrow's move inappropriately, and Cavalier's angry response probably resonated with Crow later, but you know, once he had a chance to calm down. But you, you know. It was too late to retract the words. You know, one must stay calm under pressure. That is the whole point of being a professional. And the suggestion that Caverly was predisposed to favor the defense in the Leopold and Loeb case had been made and the prosecution was now going to have to overcome this mistake. That's all that might be done and that's all that could be done. Now, returning to Darrow's request that the court permit the defense to offer evidence as to the the mental condition of the two young defendants in mitigation of judgment. Judge Cavalry was clearly no hanging judge. He might order men sentenced to death, and he might do so in this case. But recognizing the power that he wielded and the stakes that were involved, Judge Cavalry expressed interest, high interest in arguments. He was neither impetuous nor impulsive. He would be thoughtful, cognizant of the 
importance of the moment, aware of the, you know, of the vast scope of the national attention that was being, being paid to this case, carefully announced his interest in hearing any and all evidence of mitigation prior to rendering his decision on sentencing. Oh, the floodgates were now open for Clarence Darrow to introduce all kinds of expert testimony. And Cavalier stated in open court, in front of everybody, I want to give you, Mr. Darrow, all the leeway I can. I want to get all the doctor's testimony on record. There is no jury here. And I'd like to be advised as fully as possible. You can imagine what this meant to the prosecution. Oh, no. I mean, Darrow's going to be bringing in every psychiatrist he, pro he, he possibly can. And, you know, when you think about it, who could possibly be opposed to a judge who could sentence two men to death, two teenagers, who could oppose his being fully informed in a case in which the death penalty was on the table and might be imposed by the state, and in full recognition that in this case, he himself was the state. And in the midst of this public hysteria, Judge Caverly would be a thoughtful, analytical, calming presence presiding over the most prominent case in the country in which he proved himself to be in total control. And what he wanted in front of him were all the arguments to be made before he sentenced two men to death. He'd been trained to listen and evaluate argument, and by God, he was prepared to do so. Bring it on, he ordered, and so began the trial of the centuries. You know, I'm going to end on this. The Rolling Stones would recount in Sympathy for the Devil how they'd been eyewitnesses to momentous occasions in history. And in the history of jurisprudence in America, the Leopold and Loeb case now took center stage in the court of Judge Caverly. Hey, we'll be back when things begin to get really exciting. Thanks for listening and hope you'll return. Bye-bye.